ALT Mentions Podcast. Listen to Neil and Pip. We talk learning technology. The ALT Mentions Podcast. Today with me, I have a very special guest, Sasha Korniak, and I would like to invite Sasha to introduce himself. Hi, thanks very much for the introduction. Uh, my name is Sasha Korniak, and I am a director and technologist at the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Centre. Wow. Okay. So obviously we did a little bit of reading up on you as we do with our guests. And I was really excited when you shared your blog with us among the sort of the various exciting things that you've done. I admit that there was one particular word that really stuck out for me and that was uh, the word ninja, um, which I thought was fun. <laughs> uh, and I just thought, can you tell us why you included that? Because we've had, you know, um, all your sort of qualifications and project management and all the sort of really, really good stuff that you've been involved in. And maybe it says more about me, but um, I thought that was um, a really interesting word to put on your blog. Can you tell us more? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really to do with the way that I approach development or particularly around work and life. So it comes from a word which is used in Japanese called Kaizen, means continuous improvement. So it's one of these um, particular philosophies that really came out of Toyota manufacturing around improving around manufacturing standards and manufacturing production. So it's popular in many industries and it's about continuous improvement, about the scope and flexibility. And really it's about being able to adapt, uh, be flexible and change quickly in terms of situations around. It's not what I do, it's about how I go about doing it. So it's either the products I produce or getting stuff done in a concise, structured and regular, repeatable pattern. And that's really to a lot of people out there that use uh, a lot of things like Scrum or Agile Manifesto. Uh, that's really, uh, hopefully, a good description of why we go on and I use the word ninja within my blog to articulate how I go about working. I love that answer. Thank you very much. In fact, it makes me want to be more ninja, be more Sasha. I think there's a hashtag there. Thanks. And um, so when I read through all of the things that you've done and your achievements, I just wondered what was the most exciting role that you had out of all of those um, positions you've held and achievements? What was the most exciting role that you had out of all of those and why? So for me, it's my current role and the people that I work with at the Intensive Care National Audit Research Centre. And the reason why I enjoy the role I do is because of the mission of the organisation. It's a non-for-profit scientific organisation where we collect data or information on a national clinical audit for people who are critically ill. And what we do is we do some really cool mathematics around statistical analysis and calibration of risk models to look at making sure that patient mortality is less. So in other words, making sure more people are likely to survive intensive care. And also another important fact is to make sure that people suffer less while they're in intensive care. I get a huge amount of satisfaction, not just because of knowing of what I'm contributing to as part of a team, but also the people within the organisation as well. Very people with a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill, and we all come together to make people's lives better. Thank you very much for that. That means a lot, actually. I do have some personal experience of a family member being in intensive care, and it's a, a very critical space in terms of life or death situations. So that's very meaningful. The other thing I wanted to ask you, a bit of a wild card question. <laughs> you said that you collect a lot of data within this organisation. So I just wanted to ask you, what is mathematics that you mentioned? Um, is it approaches to the data that you, that you put in place? Yeah, very much so. So one of the things around what we actually 
actually use, and a lot of in the organisation, is epidemiology, which is looking around patterns and looking at statistical analysis and actually making sure that the data that we receive is credible. Lots of other people probably that are listening to this or people that work in those particular fields realise the accuracy and the collection of that data to make sure that the data is, one, none of it's missing, uh, and two, to making sure that the actual data that we collect is credible. So one of the things that we don't want to do when we're collecting data is double count people. The other difference is, is we don't use derived data, we use the raw data, so we don't allow people to add things up for us on our behalf. You collect the raw data, and then if we need to derive it, we'll do that within the statisticians department itself. Great answer, thanks. Um, I think data literacy is really important in terms of education in, in schools, and obviously this is a learning technology podcast, but as we can see, technology and learning technology is bigger than itself. Do you think that we should teach data literacy in schools? Absolutely. I think the other thing also, it's not just about data literacy, it's also data engineering. There's a lot of confusion at the moment within the industry sector, generally within tech, to understand the difference between data scientists or data science and data engineering. Data engineering, ETL, the extract, transform and load part of the process. And really data science are the individuals that are using statistical programs like Stata, R, Python, or SAS. And I think it's really important to want to make sure that people understand from a literacy and a definition point of view, but also understand the principles of data engineering as well. Really, really good point and good to make the distinction. I'm really curious, you seem to be incredible, the range of things that you've done. What do you find the most challenging about working in technology? So for me, problem solving or creating the solution. Usually sometimes the biggest challenge I face is explaining that the problem is not that big and it's really going back to the idea of Kaizen and also some of the other things I've already said. It's not really about what we do, it's about making sure that it's not about what we do but it's about how we go about doing it and really one of the biggest challenges really at the moment is people. It's about getting people to be able to work together collaboratively and a structured approach so people make sure that they come together to either resolve the problem or produce the actual product. So it's alignment, which is one of the biggest challenging things within the world of tech at the moment for me, not actually the technology. The technology is pretty sound at the moment in 2019. The biggest problem at the moment is making sure that we're all on the same page and we're all working together in a direction of travel, which is understood, valued and is achievable. Yeah, um, and I also think, think in education, we're constantly trying to use technology as a platform to get students to collaborate and develop collaborative skills. So I think we're on the same page there. I was looking at your blog again, um, and it has a rather cool logo of your face. That is really cool. How did you do that? Uh, that's a designer friend of mine, which is actually a picture of mine, which he took and then basically just redrawn. So that's actually from a photograph. It's very creative and a, a very effective logo. You've got a video content on your website. Can you tell us more about this and about what it is that you were trying to achieve with the videos? Yeah, so blogging is usually done in a written form where people write things. People that know me know how much I like to talk, and it's also a time factor. So one of the things uh, about, from my experience, is it's about being able to articulate and a term which I've been using now for about five years, which is collated content. So it's relevant, timely, proportioned, central information for the people receiving it. And by using a video blog or vlog, vlogging, which has now become popular, I can articulate and also use infographics to put my point across and to create a blog quicker than it would take me to write it all down 
and then also it's for the actual person receiving the information. Um, some of my blogs are 15 minutes long. I try to keep them between eight and 15 minutes for high level. And then I create deep dives, which is really for going into the granular detail. And for me to produce that by writing would take a, an enormous amount of time versus the amount of time of just talking to camera. So it's a quick way of having credible, reliable information, which you can pass on to other people for the point of view of knowledge transfer. I really like that use of the deep dive approach and the dif digital differentiation for the higher levels and the lower levels. That's great. Would you like a job as a teacher? <laughs> <laughs> in the past, I've, I've done lecturing. I don't mind lecturing. I didn't really enjoy seminars so much because it makes me work harder. <laughs> That's true. I quite like the idea of multimodal approaches to sharing content. So it's video and audio and you're definitely in the right place for talking on this podcast. So bring it on. Right. Speaking of talking, lecturing, have you presented at a conference recently? I'm sure on your blog we saw some, at least one image of you presenting at what looked like a large conference event. Can you tell us a bit more? Absolutely. So uh, that was the National Clinical Mixed Case Conference, which is used within the NHS uh, and in private hospitals around a national clinical audit for the case mix program. What that is, is again, is stuff that I referred to earlier. And what I was doing at this particular conference was updating people on the benchmarking between different critical care units and the launch of a new audit platform called the Platform X. National clinical audit around the case mix program is quite complicated when you're going backwards and forwards with the queries to the actual people in the units to understand the nature of the data and how that data is necessarily being determined. And what we've done with Platform X is create sorry, a message system allowing a two-way communication between the person in the intensive care unit and our data coordinators to be able to come to the answers and resolution quicker than what we do currently. So that's a kind of case study of how technology is used to accelerate outcomes, would you say? It's about communication and about getting the right answer. And about bringing that resolution around optimization and performance. One of the things that ICMA has as a credible credibility factor over the last 25 years of the history of the organization is their rigor on making sure that the data is correct and is also timely as well. And I really like the name of the platform. It sounds quite cool, actually, Platform X. Yeah, so the reason we came up with Platform X is because it's a lot more than just a national clinical audit platform. Uh, in the future, it will be used by a clinical trials unit, and eventually also it will be used with a term called BRAD, which is beyond reporting analytics and dashboards. So it really is a data platform, and we've had to go through in the organisation a change in mindset which has led to behaviour modification on the way that we think about information and data. That's interesting what you're saying about behaviour modification, because increasingly in education, educational practitioners are having to be dual specialists. They're having to be subject specialists, for example, in their curriculum area. But they're also having to become technologically astute at the same time. It can sometimes be a challenge. So I think that challenge is fairly ubiquitous. Very much so. Uh, but it seems it's becoming more and more prevalent uh, in the sector and across industry that I work in on a day-to-day -day basis. Speaking healthcare, you've also worked in education before, which will be potentially of, of interest to our listeners. Um, you'd worked for the Educational Collaborative International Schools, or the ECIS, for short. Can you tell us a bit more about this organisation and the kind of things that you got up to? Absolutely. Yeah. So the International 
Collaborative of International Schools was founded in 1965. It's a non-for-profit global membership organisation that provides professional learning, quality assurance, school services, research, advocacy, grants and awards to its members. It's a fantastic organisation around the idea of international education. People while recognise that as the International Baralorkit, uh, which has got an international representation across the world. And my role as the Chief Information Officer and as a short snippet of one of the things that I was successfully doing at my time there is we implemented something called CIS Connect.org, which is a version of LinkedIn but for international schools and people working in international education. The reason why we decided to facilitate this microsite was to try and allow people to find the content that they're looking for. So it's really about collaboration. So one of the first things that we saw within the collaboration of the members on using that is the teacher was asking for primary school children. People had active classroom scenarios for teaching children motor skills on how to use cutlery uh, because they had young children that were coming into the school with motor issues around being able to cut their food and be able to feed themselves and within less than an hour there were over 60 to 65 posts people giving this particular feature different types of scenarios and training around how motor skills in different fun environments can be taught to people between the ages of three and six. Well, that's an incredible project. In terms of technology predictions then, obviously platforms are used um, in educational settings. Um, learning analytics and progress data are used to kind of personalise experiences um, and 21st century um, student experiences carry this kind of expectation that there'll be a platform involved or there'll be some sort of blended approach. Um, I just wondered more broadly uh, what your top five technology predictions will be for the next five years. Interesting question. Um, so the first one that I would say, and I've been an advocate of open source software for yes. the last decade, and yes, I think yes, in the yes. next five years that's going to come really scaling really big, uh, especially with organisations like the NHS, who recently this week, uh, NHS X, which is a new organisation, um, have said that their preference for software to be used within the NHS is to be open source, and they will be giving vendors more of a priority who are open to share their source code uh, than vendors that aren't. Um, so that's the first one. Uh, the second one is a little bit controversial. Uh, it's around blockchain. Uh, mm. I think that realize in the next five years that blockchain doesn't scale and it isn't suitable for everything. There are definitely applications to blockchain, uh, but at the moment I think people are not really seeing the way in which this is going to scale over time and it's going to end up burning out in a lot of ways. Uh, another one would be around um, the anonymous um, automated operations that are going to happen. We're going to lose one billion jobs in the world through automation. And I think technology is going to be something that's going to be seen that in the next five years. Um, other ones as well, I went back to uh, data engineering, and particularly within data engineering, it's going to be something called metadata insertion and data cataloging. And uh, for people that um, are familiar or unfamiliar around this, what this is around is this is taking artificial intelligence and using that to create metadata. Metadata being bits of information about all the data. I think that that is something in the next five years which is going to become more prevalent.
Well, thank you very much for that. Um, a lot of teachers are kind of concerned about whether a robot will replace them in their capacity as a teacher in the classroom. I don't know what you think about that, but I think part of being a teacher, a lot of those processes, whilst they are automated, and I think there's something about being a teacher or a lecturer or just a general educator that can't be automated. I don't know if you agree with that or what your view is of teaching and learning and automation. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think that we should ever think about replacing teachers with artificial intelligence or human beings. I think that we need to make sure that we keep that human connection. Behaviours and our emotions make us what we are and artificial intelligence I don't think we'll ever be able to supersede those things. We should be seeing technologies and aid in education that supports the process. I'm uh, dyslexic and was educated mainly in the 90s and now the technology that exists would have been really supportive of me within the times of the 90s so really some of the things you can do with artificial intelligence within global classroom is to be able to facilitate people who speak different languages who may have visual or impaired hearing issues by using the presenter translator which is a free plugin into powerpoint which creates subtitles in real time what the teacher is saying so that isn't replacing the teacher what that's allowing is the content to be distributed to people who have disabilities and also in multi-languages. And that's really what we should be focusing on and not thinking about removing the brain function, which is the teacher. Teaching is a philosophy as well as being more than just a job, a vocation in life to be a teacher. And I think we need to be making sure that we protect teachers and the role of teachers and promoting about that more as educators. It's up to educators to teach people on how to do things. And I think we should make sure that technology is only an aid to that and not something that's going to be replacing it. Couldn't agree more. Thank you very much for that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be very energised by your comments. Just to reinforce what you're saying, um, I think I was reading an online article in Forbes by Joe McKendrick in 2018, and he was saying that artificial intelligence will replace tasks and not jobs. So it's really important to make that distinction that it can be used as an opportunity to enhance the learning, but not replace it. We have a couple more questions that we're dying to ask you. How can people get in touch with you if they would you know, really like you to work on a project or they're really sort of passionate about the types of things that you're saying and your approaches. How can people get in touch with you? www.allistrue.org and they can also find me on Twitter, which is Sasha All Is True. Super. One of the final questions I'm really keen to ask you is what do you think the best way is to get into tech? So say if you're a high school student or even a graduate, what do you think the best way is to get into tech? So, um, depending on where you are in the world, one of the best ways to get into tech is to meet people. So, meetup.com has lots and lots of meetups throughout the whole of Europe and particularly around the globe around people meeting up and getting involved in talking about technology. Not just technology, but the use and the practicalities of how to bring that together. Um, so I'd really recommend people using Meetup to go along and find those things out there. If people have uh, the luxury of being in central London or being able to get to London, one of the best places to go is Skills Matters. That's near Liverpool Street Station. And every evening, free events where people can go along and listen to people that work in the industry. And it's really making that networking ability. Um, if you also want to prove that you've got an interest and an enthusiasm, I would recommend that you start off with, with a Raspberry Pi. I start to look at that technology and see what it was 
and then start writing about it. Create your own blog, uh, go to WordPress or Medium and start writing about your passion and what you're interested in doing. You take some elements and content for my own way of doing it. Because when I'm looking for people to work in technology, what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for that passion and dedication about how they're thinking about technology, not necessarily what they're doing. When I'm interviewing developers, I'm not interested in what they've done in the past. I'm interested in talking to them about how they feel and how they write code. And it's the same way with lots of other bits of technology as well. It's the passion and determination and enthusiasm which I'm interested in because experience and skills and actually having knowledge is things that we can do as we're going along. Um, but it's really passion about the best way to get into tech. I agree with that. So whilst I'm not the most talented engineer or developer, none of which do have um, a passion, particularly within technology enhancing learning. I think sometimes that can get lost. We're obsessed with evidence and what we've done in the past. That really does open doors. I think that what you've just said does open doors for people. I think it's quite important to acknowledge that actually you're multi-talented. <laughs> uh, it's been a privilege to have the opportunity to chat to you and ask questions and share passion about technology. You're not just about tech, are you? Because you have written a book. Is that true? Yes, that's right. So uh, I wrote a travel guide to Cuba. Uh, one of the things I was very fortunate to do is to go over to Cuba and to participate in the bringing of the internet to Cuba through the uh, fiber optic cable that came into Venezuela in around about 2011. And I worked in 2014 to bring up the MPLS network, which is the back end of the, of the internet for the actual island of Cuba and help to do some knowledge transfer. Cubans are very intelligent and very highly educated. They certainly don't need to be told what to do, but unfortunately they don't have exposure to the actual technology and that's what I was able to facilitate. So while I was there, I got to travel around the island and people kept on asking me questions. So eventually uh, I decided to consolidate all the stuff I'd already written into a book called The Cuba Wanderer, a guide, not a tourist guide. It's really for people who want to go wrong and experience the true authenticity of a community in an island in a very different perspective. Well, that sounds incredible. So how can people find the book? Is it on Amazon? Yep, it's on Amazon. It's also at Waterstone, WH Smith. It's out in every major retailer. And obviously, um, I want a signed copy. That's no problem at all. Unfortunately, signed copies are only actually given out in Cuba, so you're going to have to meet me there. I'm sure that that wouldn't be a problem. An opportunity to travel to Cuba would be incredible. How could technology improve learning in three words? What would you say? I think really the first one is repeatable. Allow things to, to be repeated so it can be um, safe for a long period of time. I think it's also the fact that I think in three words, technology can help in education around accessibility. Yes. Making repeatable for multiple audiences and also lastly making sure that it's shareable so the fact is that people don't have to redo the teaching it's been able to be distributed well thank you for that one of the key words that, that came out of that for me was the word accessibility uh, digital yeah. accessibility is very important recently it's certainly people are talking about it a lot you mentioned that um, you have dyslexia and you mentioned uh, a plugin for powerpoint that, that has helped before are there any other tools that you've used before that you could recommend to uh, listeners who have dyslexia 
dyslexia or who experience accessibility issues in, in a digital capacity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, being dyslexic, obviously reading is something that uh, I struggled with. It's really interesting to see not only is it my dyslexia that causes problems, it's also to do with the fact that we've decided over the last couple hundred years uh, that books should be written with black text out on white paper. And it was only when my mother bought me a Kindle that I realised that suddenly a lot of my issues around reading, my dyslexia, went away when I could change the size of the font, the spacing of the, of the words, and the amount of words on one line. And really since 2010, 11, uh, I've read more books uh, in the last nine years than I have done in my entire life because I don't get so tired, so much effort for me to be able to read books. So I've read so much more than I have done in the last nine years than ever before because I have the digital control over the font, over the style, the spacing of the words and the way that they look. And also the fact is that it's black writing on grey and not black writing on white. It was very difficult for me in the past to actually make sure that I could keep up with where I was within what I was reading, what line, what word I was reading. And also I've noticed that I read at quite a quick pace compared to other people when they're reading the same text, when the background and the actual fonts are different as well. That's really interesting that you said that. came across a very similar tool and approach um, actually by Microsoft. They have a tool called the Immersive Reader where a lot of the features that you've just described are present. So you can customise the colour and the background. There's also a really exciting feature, the Visual Dictionary. So you could see um, visual representation of, of a noun, for example. Yep. The customizable options are, are brilliant. There is also a feature to read aloud. So I think digital accessibility is being taken really seriously. And I have to say the immersive reader is the best tool I've seen in terms of a commitment to digital accessibility. We've also got these, you mentioned the Raspberry Pi had the opportunity to create anything. Yes, so uh, I use them in, in organisations to create displays. You don't want to go and have the expense of a full computer or PC. You've plugged it into a display just to provide information. I've used Raspberry Pis as displaying content around dashboards, analytics and public information systems. So when you go into uh, offices now, airports, public areas, sometimes a lot of the actual technology behind there could be a Raspberry Pi actually providing that content uh, onto those screens that exist. So it's quite amazing on how something that can be used by people in the classroom actually has an application within most offices and public arenas. Really good point. The most I've been able to carry out with a Raspberry Pi was at the EdTech Podcast Festival last year in East London in a building called Pexel. An organisation called Pi Top had created curricula related to Raspberry Pi activities. I decided to put the hat on of a student and take part in a workshop. And they had sort of computers with Raspberry Pi embedded and the curriculum content displayed already. And we had to work together to power up an LED using Using the Raspberry Pi and even though it was so simple, just a simple activity, the sense of achievement was brilliant because this light goes on and you've actually followed the instructions properly and, and it was interesting to look at the way they'd structured the curriculum. So it went from being very simple things like powering up an LED to more problem-based 
project-based approaches to the curriculum. So a bunch of students could get together and say, well, right, we want to change something or respond to a community problem that matters to us, that isn't given to us by a bunch of teachers. And we want to come up with a solution, create a problem-solving approach. Raspberry Pis are fabulous. I've been to the Raspberry Pi Foundation in Cambridge. Great place, great foundation. I think there's also a little shop in Cambridge City Centre, isn't there, where you can get a Raspberry Pi hoodie. Who wouldn't want a Raspberry Pi hoodie? So thank you very much. And um, What I'm doing at the moment is I've realised over the last 15 years that I've still got lots of content from public speaking, from workshops. If you look at my LinkedIn, you can see that I did a Agile scrum and moscow prioritization session it was interactive it wasn't death by powerpoints yesterday and what i'm going to start doing is i'm, going to, I'm slowly starting to drag out all the concepts uh, update it or make it more adaptable for everyone it isn't particularly targeted in one area and i'm going to slowly start to build that app portfolio up on my app log so what i want it to become is i want it to become one a knowledge base uh, for people to see uh, about technology and the work I do, but also a resource for people as well. Uh, so uh, one of the things that was interesting over the last week is I was looking for a scenario on how to do Moscow prioritization within a classroom. And what I found was there was no actual scenarios out there. There was lots and lots of stuff about Moscow prioritization and the methodology and how it worked, all the rules around it, but there was no scenarios. So I've had to write a quick scenario myself. I'm going to create five or six of them, and I'm going to put those up on the uh, on my website with a video as well as the documentation on how to do it so other people can download it because it's all right talking about things. The only way that you get to learn things is through practical examples and scenarios and people actually being immersed yes. in the methodology that makes it comprehensible. So this is scenario-based learning? Very much so, yeah. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Sasha. I've really enjoyed listening to you talk about technology in a variety of different contexts, not just in one discipline. So it's been a kind of cross-disciplinary discussion, which I've really enjoyed. And although this podcast is explicitly about learning technology, we can see that technology is bigger than itself. I've really enjoyed that. The thread that's run through our conversation that I've really enjoyed is a passion for technology and its ability to change our lives for the better. Mention, 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 mention,